do not congratulate. So wrote White House national security aides in talking points for President Trump this week when he decided to call Vladimir Putin after his re-election as Russia's president. There was a reason the NSC aides wrote those words. Putin had jailed one of his leading rivals. He had suppressed dissidents. One of the most prominent had been assassinated on a bridge in the shadow of the Kremlin three years ago. And given the timing, coming just days after the British government had accused the Russians of a murder-by-poison plot on British soil, it seemed to many inside the White House that this was not the time to be cozying up to America's most menacing adversary. And yet that's exactly what President Trump did this week calling up Putin, congratulating him, and choosing not to confront him about the nerve agent poisoning of a former Russian spy in the United Kingdom. It was a very good call, Trump said after he spoke to Putin. But was it a good call for America? We'll explore that question with a leading Republican member of the House Intelligence Committee and delve into the committee's conclusion, at least the conclusion by the Republicans on that panel, that there was no collusion between the Trump campaign and the Kremlin on today's episode of Skullduggery. There is absolutely no collusion. I didn't make a phone call to Russia. I have nothing to do with Russia. Everybody knows it. Because people have got to know whether or not their presidents are crook. Well, I'm not a crook. I told the American people I did not trade arms for hostages. My heart and my best intentions still tell me that's true. But the facts and the evidence tell me it is not. I did not have sexual relations with that woman. The British government has learned that Saddam Hussein recently sought significant quantities of uranium from Africa. How many times do I have to answer this question? Can you just Russia say no is a it? ruse. I'm Michael Isikoff, Chief Investigative Correspondent for Yahoo News. And I'm Dan Clydman, Editor-in-Chief of Yahoo News. Uh, you know, Dan, this, uh, the phone call that Trump made to Putin is obviously getting a lot of attention. But before we go there, um, let's talk about Trump's tweets. Uh, in particular, the tweet he did right after the phone call, special counsel is told to find crimes, whether crimes exist or not. Um, he's talking about Mueller there. He misspells counsel. And he misspells weather. He actually misspells counsel three times, spelling it C-O-U-N-C-I-L instead of counsel as in lawyer, C-O-U-N-S-E-L. Um, it seems to me this is the ultimate proof that nobody is reading these tweets before they go out. Yeah, well, first of all, no one's reading them, uh, which is which is worrisome because he does them, you know, at what five in the morning, six in the morning when he's watching Fox News generally. But also, you know, you you know, you would think that okay, the the tweets in which he's trying to delegitimize de uh, Bob Mueller, that that's really the serious issue here, and that the fact that he misspells counsel is just kind of amusing. And people have joked about it, and it is funny that like dictionary dot com, you know, immediately uh, tweets uh, the difference between the two different councils, and Miriam Webster's does the same thing, and you know, we all kind of joke about it, but actually, it is kind of serious. That yeah, you know, I mean, the guy can't spell. It also raises the question: Does he read? It it reflects a kind of intellectual laziness. Um, that um, I think is concerning. Um, and, you know, um, we, I, I think it actually in some ways relates to what we're going to talk about in a minute um, about that Putin phone call and his 
just how he prepares uh, for those kinds of um, important uh, uh, diplomatic interactions. Um, so um, it, it, and, and this is not the first time he's done this, by the way, on council. I mean, he has done it over and over again. He is when he's tweeted about his White House counsel, Don McGahn, he's done the same thing. So it's not as if uh, he hasn't done this, had to delete the tweets, been mocked online about it, you know, and then figured it out. He doesn't figure it out, He's which a is bizarre. Serious mis- misspeller. Um, <laughs> a serial misspeller. A I don't know whether misspeller. that's going to end up in the Mueller report. Uh, probably not, but... Uh, <laughs> uh, can can one be impeached for not being able to spell? I mean, I don't know. I don't know. I, you know, on that one, I think at the end of the day, he's going to probably have the support of uh, the, you know, the two-thirds of the Senate that he would need uh, to prevent, in, 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 you know, a conviction in, in, in an impeachment trial, because there are a lot of people who can't yeah. spell. Yeah, well, but th- th- this seems uh, particularly egregious, especially when he's done it before, it's been pointed out before, and he continues to do it. But it does raise the question I was saying before is, does he read? And that does relate to the Putin phone call because, you know, the the, the national security staff prepares these talking points for him in cap letters do not congratulate, all in caps. And what does the guy do? He congratulates. Yeah. Well, yeah. Go back to your point about him not reading. I mean, that a lot of people who can't spell are people who don't read. And we know that Donald Trump watches a lot of TV. Some have said five hours a day, cable television. Um, and we also know that he does not read a lot of the documents that are given to him. Um, you know, the, pre- the, the, the PDB, the Presidential Daily Brief, uh, you know, he apparently he often does not read. Um, the New York Times reported a while ago uh, that uh, when they were when the NSC was giving him briefing papers before he was going on an overseas trip, they threaded the document with mentions of his name, uh, like in bold letters, so that you know that would that would actually get him to read it because you know he, he's uh, you know he's he he is attracted to you know references to himself. Uh, they had to do that, and in this example, in the Putin, uh, uh, you know, pre- preparing for the Putin call. Uh, you know, the the big capital, you know, block letters to get him to read it. So, uh, you know, this is this is a really serious problem as well. Uh, it's a serious remember, problem because, uh, among other things, uh, if we know about it, because we're reading about it in The New York Times, you know, the Russians know this, too. And if you're trying to figure out how to manipulate this guy, how to use his weaknesses and insecurities and uh, bad habits to your advantage. Um, you know, you know, the FSB has its top psychologists, psychiatrists uh, uh, contributing uh, their insights into how to play President Trump. Hey, Isakoff, this just in. So we just learned that John Dowd, uh, Trump's chief lawyer in the uh, Russia investigation, just resigned. Awesome. Awesome. The the turmoil never stops here. Um, look, this is not a total shock to me. Uh, Dowd is um, this sort of blustery, uh, larger than life character who expected to be calling all the shots. What he didn't anticipate was having a client like Donald Trump um, who would uh, uh, take his advice or leave his advice. And uh, there were multiple examples of that. Um 
Now, we don't really know what's going on here, but what I suspect also is you just had Trump hire Joe DeGeneva, another blustery, larger-than-life character uh, in the Washington legal community who expects to be calling shots. And I have to believe at least a part of this is Dowd saying, what's that guy uh, uh, coming on for and who's in charge here? Yeah, there's there's not enough room for two hard-charging, blustery, uh, you know, uh, you know, media uh, hungry Washington lawyers right. on the same team. There are a couple of other things here, though. I mean, over the weekend, last weekend, uh, Dowd uh, gave this interview to the Daily Beast in which he said that he hoped Rod Rosenstein uh, would would basically fire Mueller, shut down the probe, uh, and then had to call back. And, and he said he was saying that on behalf of the president. Then he had to call back and say, well, actually, those that, that was just me. It wasn't... Uh, what the president, uh, you know, it wasn't on behalf of the president. Well, you know, he probably got a call from Trump or someone on Trump's behalf saying, hey, you got to clean this up. Although, do we have any doubt that Trump uh, would would like the Mueller probe to be shut down and have Rosenstein shut it down? No. And then the other thing that that I just I mean, The New York Times, it not I don't know, a week, 10 days ago, they wrote a story about turmoil on the on the uh, Trump legal team. They said there's, you know, likely to be a shakeup. Uh, just another example of Trump being uh, truth challenged. This is what he tweeted. The failing New York Times purposely wrote a false story stating that I am unhappy with my legal team on the Russia case, and I'm going to add <laughs> another lawyer to help out. Wrong. I am very happy with my lawyers, John Dowd, Ty Cobb, and Jay Sekulow. They're doing a great job. I mean, come on. Yeah. It's like parallel universes. It's just so right. crazy. Right. Well, I mean, you know, if Trump was happy with his legal team, it does raise the question of whether the legal team was happy with it, with their client. Uh, and it doesn't seem to be the case here. Um, look. Trump's tweets are sort of off in this bizarre never never land. You don't know what to make them, uh, make of them. Uh, aside from the fact that the guy, as we pointed out, can't spell. Um, yeah. But um, I, I suspect that there that there have been and still are these underlying tensions. To what degree do you cooperate with Mueller? To what degree is he a threat to the president? Uh, if you fire him, uh, does it blow up in 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 the president's face. So, but but yeah, but that's interesting because um, you know you would think the like in a, with a normal presidency, it would be like the lawyer would be saying you really should sit down. Maybe you should sit down with the prosecutor. Maybe you should. Uh, I'm sorry, you should not. Um, right, uh, which is Trump what which actually, is what Dowd was saying. He that's didn't, what Dowd he didn't was want saying. To that's Trump. Trump to wants. He, Trump apparently wants to sit down and give and give the interview because yeah. he's got all this confidence about how well he would he would do. The one thing I want to just last thing I want to say about uh, D- Joe DeGeneva is um, uh, he might be just the right guy for this team. Remember, um, his father was a professional opera singer. Uh, DeGeneva <laughs> himself is a is a uh, is an amateur opera singer. And so I think a legal team with this much drama, you know, is probably a perfect fit for Joe DeGeneva. Opera buff, I think, is the word. Op- opera buff. Opera buff. And that yeah, is indeed you know, is what this, this whole this, saga in Washington is going to end up as. The question is, is it comic opera or is it or is it tragic opera? I guess I guess we'll find out a little bit of both. Um, Yeah. Anyway, we do have our Republican member of the House Intelligence Committee um, here with us now. 
Congressman Chris Stewart. Welcome. Good morning. Good to be with you. Um, you know, I'm I'm really uh, excited to have you on because uh, I don't know if you recall, but uh, back in uh, early 2016, before all the Trump-Russia controversy began, um, you and I spoke because you were one of those who was warning about Vladimir Putin and Russian efforts to destabilize Western democracies. Yeah. I remember <laughs> you put into the uh, congressional record a, a uh, Congressional Research Service report about everything Russia was up to uh, in, uh, in in trying to disrupt um, governments all across Europe. Um, so you were really concerned about what Vladimir Putin was up to. Um, and yet um, you backed a presidential candidate of your party who seemed to who seemed to dismiss everything that you were warning about. Yeah. Explain. Well, first, thanks for bringing that up. I mean, because uh, when I say bringing it up, I mean, I'm talking about Vladimir Putin and his intentions to destabilize democracies around the world. And there's just no question that that is his intent. Uh, as I think, Michael, you and I spoke, I was in Moscow in August before the election, and I came home after a long visit there, just recommitted to this idea of his intentions there. And I told people he's going to mess with our elections, and not many people seemed to really be concerned with that. Uh, there weren't very many follow-up interviews or questions regarding that. And again, it's not just U.S. democracy. It's democracies in, in Europe, in Eastern Europe, and other places around the world. And and, uh, and he wants to, if he can weaken the U.S., if he can make the U.S. look as if we are unstable or as if we're chaotic, uh, if he can diminish our role in the world, he certainly wants to do that. Now, regarding your, your issue with the president, I'm going to take a little issue with the phrasing of the question, if I could, and that is I'm not sure I agree completely that mis this president seemed to diminish or to uh, ignore Vladimir Putin's intentions there. But I'll just say this. If he did, then I would think he's just wrong or he was wrong at the time. And he and I just disagreed on that. And yet this very week uh, after Vladimir Putin is overwhelmingly reelected president of Russia, um, President Trump calls him to congratulate him, yeah. even though his national security staff gave him talking points in caps, do not congratulate. This comes just a few days uh, after the uh, British government has concluded that uh, uh, the Russians were behind a uh, nerve agent poisoning attack uh, on their soil. Here's what uh, Senator John McCain uh said uh, just this week, right after the news broke about what President Trump had done, an American president does not lead the free world by congratulating dictators on winning sham elections. Do you agree? Yeah, I actually do. I mean, I don't think there's any chance in the world that this was a free and fair election. We know that. He, uh, other candidates were intimidated out of uh, their desire to seek office. One of them was actually murdered, or at least we suspect he was murdered. Uh, I think they were stuffing ballots in, in every location or almost every location. And having, look, Vladimir Putin intends to be there for a long, long time. It was not a democracy, a democratic effort there. If I were president of the United States, would I have called and congratulated him? I wouldn't have. Now, So how disturbed are you that our president did that? 
Well, I mean, not terribly. Uh, look, not terribly? No, I mean, I don't think it's the most important thing that we've seen. You in, don't think in, it sends the wrong signal? I think it I think it probably does, but you can't have your head explode every time someone does something you disagree with. I mean, if we did that, then we would do very little but sit around and object to people. I think I think the important point here is this. As I said, uh, if I were president or were I president of the United States, would I have used those words, congratulations? And by the way, I don't know if he did or not. I, I really don't. I mean, some people have recorded that but, or reported that, but I don't, I don't know if it's true or not. But let's just presume for the moment that it was. Would I have used those words? I wouldn't. I wouldn't congratulate someone who had manipulated an election and, as I said, is essentially uh, a dictator and doesn't intend to ever give up his power, I don't believe, in Russia. But having said that, I think it's a stretch, and I think it's, and I'm not saying you've made this proposition, by the way, but some have. I think it's a ridiculous proposition to say that this president wants Vladimir Putin to succeed and that he's not willing to confront him. And let me give you some reasons why. Number one is this president said from the beginning, I will rebuild our military, and we're in the process of doing that. Number two is he said, I will put America first, and he clearly has. Number three is this president insisted that NATO, for the first time in generations, actually adhere to their agreements to pay 2% of their GDP towards NATO. That's a meaningful, uh, a meaningful change there. And that will counter Vladimir Putin. And the last thing is, and then I'll, then I'll let you jump in, I think our energy policy is one of the most mean, it is the most meaningful sanction we can put on Russia. If you keep oil at 50 or 60 dollars barrel rather than 110, that has more impact on on Russia and their ability to have funds to to fund some of their nefarious activity than anything else we could do and this president is committed to doing that. But just to point out, uh th- this uh latest uh example of uh Trump congratulating Putin doesn't come in isolation. There is now a long history going back to 2013 when the president was trying to do a business deal in Moscow to build a Trump Tower uh, there of him saying flattering, sympathetic things about uh, Vladimir Putin. He wanted to be his best friend. He wanted to meet him, dismissing uh, Putin's uh, uh, suppression of dissidents, his murder of journalists, his murder on, uh, of Litvinenko, all of, the, all of the long track record that uh, Putin, uh, of, of Putin's track record has been dismissed and explained away as immaterial by Donald Trump. And so when people see Trump this far into his presidency doing something that seems inexplicable, congratulating a dictator on his sham election, as you've just uh, characterized it yourself and John McCain did, um, they say this is not in isolation. There's something going on here that we don't fully understand. Okay, two things on that. And I hate to argue with my host, right? Please do. That's what we're here for. But but I I do think there, you know, you and I may just view this differently. Number one is you go back to 2012, 2013. I promise you, and you know this, uh, Donald Trump wasn't the only businessman who was trying to engage in Russia and was not viewing them as an adversary. For heaven's sakes, our own president and secretary of the state had much the same attitude. And you go back to President Obama's off-the-microphone comment about, you know, wait till after the election and we'll have more flexibility. They viewed Russia as a potential partner, not an adversary. That's the way the world was nearly 10 years ago or eight years ago. So I think you got to put and, – and Donald Trump wasn't a politician. He was a businessman. He was trying to create business relationships there. So you're not going to go to Russia and criticize Vladimir Putin when you want to develop relationships. Well, doesn't and, that suggest that Trump's view of Putin 
and his views of Russia were uh, influenced greatly by his own interests in doing business and making money well, in Russia. Well, you know, in 2012, there's no question that's true, as was every businessman. Well, beyond 2012. Well, 2013 he, is when he first well, signs the letter of intent for Trump okay. Tower Moscow. And then again, while running for president in 2015, a second letter of intent okay. to build a Trump Tower he in Moscow. He was doing what... Uh, Hillary Clinton and Barack Obama and other U.S. officials were trying to get U.S. businessmen to do. And By that 2015, is to, we were sanctioning Russia. We were but the, but, sanctioning its financial But at the time up to that point, they were trying to facilitate business relationships with Russia. We were trying – remember the reset – Russia right. is no longer oh, our yeah. enemy. Okay, so he was we go doing... into great depth uh, on the reset in yeah. Russian roulette. By the way, uh, so he plugged was... for my uh, for my book. Well, he was doing what what the U.S. government was was encouraging business leaders to do, and that is to do business and and to develop business relationships there. Now, I got to come back to my second point though, and that is this: Look, I've been clear on uh, my disagreement with him on his on his phone call. But you have to understand that's one phone call, and I, you and I agree, it was probably inappropriate. But you can't disregard the other four or five things that I've said. It's the policy. You, I mean, again, it's just a stretch for me to say that the importance of that one phone call was way more important than convincing a dozen NATO nations to contribute more to the defense, to increasing our own defense spending with an eye towards Russia to $700 billion dollars. The other sanctions have been put in place, the economic or energy policies, et cetera. You, you just can't give those two fair balance. I don't think that they equal each other. I mean, I think one is far more important than the other. Uh, you are uh, a member of the House Intelligence Committee, a Republican. Uh, the Republicans have announced the investigation uh, uh, into uh, Trump-Russia ties is over. You found no collusion, no evidence of collusion. Um, and um, you said that you believe the CIA just got it wrong when it concluded that um, Russia's meddling in the election was influenced by a desire to help Donald Trump. Um, explain why you think the CIA got it wrong. Well, let's take the two things if we could. I mean, the first thing was about the, the, our investigation. Um, I encouraged uh, our committee to take the view that our our report was an initial report. And we feel like we've go through the numbers, 310,000 documents, 50 or 60 or 70 witnesses, uh, you know, hundreds and hundreds or thousands of man hours put in this. And we just haven't learned anything new in a long time now, months and months. So we felt like we but wanted... But there are a lot of witnesses you never well, got to question. Well, 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 let me come to that. Okay. So we felt like we wanted to report what we have to the American people before the next election, before the midterms. We feel like we have a responsibility to do that. If we find other information, uh, then we'll pursue that. To, to your second point about uh, the witnesses, the Democrats gave us a list of, I think, 80 or 90 witnesses several weeks ago. Boatloads of them are Russians. There's no way in the world those guys are going to come before our committee. I mean, it's a dream to think that we're going to get Russian agents to come testify before our committee. One of the individuals has passed away. I doubt we're going to be able to talk to him. And my point is this. If you set a standard that this investigation is not over until you invest, until you question all of these witnesses— and then give us a list of witnesses that you know we can't question, 
then the conclusion is the investigation never ends because, because we can't question those witnesses. So if they show us or anyone shows us information that's relevant and important, we'll pursue it. And final thought on that, uh, Michael, it's not just me. It's not just my committee who says there's no evidence inclusion. Diane Feinstein has said the same thing. Director Clapper has said the same thing. I don't know any Democrat, or at least I know very, very few Democrats who are talking inclusion at all anymore because they know that that horse isn't going to take him across the river. Did you have a a chance to question George Papadopoulos. Um, you know what? George Papadopoulos is, as you know, under the purview of the special counsel. And so we actually, anyone under indictment by the special counsel, we can talk to them, which is why, which, by the so, way. So that's George Papadopoulos, Michael Flynn, Rick Gates, critical witnesses in Mueller's investigation, uh, all of whom are cooperating, um, and you have not had the chance to question them. Um so doesn't that raise a question about whether you can reach the kind of conclusion you did? Nothing to see L- here. Let me ask you simply. Sure. I'll give you, I'll give you a chance. Do right. you believe, can you make a case that there was collusion between the Trump uh, campaign and the Russian I, I think collusion is one of those terms that could be defined in many different ways. Okay. And, and that uh, would reach any kind of legal threshold or, or a political meaningful yeah, threshold. But you're not, you're not a prosecutor. You're, right. you're, you're here to, to uh, ex- expose to the American people what really happened. And even if it does not rise to the level of a crime, that's Robert Mueller's uh, purview, um, there's still a lot of questions here. If we haven't heard from somebody like Papadopoulos, who is meeting with Kremlin cutouts in London and gets told that the Russians have uh, dirt on Hillary Clinton in the form of thousands of emails, um, you want to know what was he talking about? Yeah. What information did he communicate to others in the Trump campaign? Okay, so let, let me be very clear, because you know this. We can't talk to those witnesses anymore. Have you asked Mueller's people whether you can well, No, we, we have an agreement with them that once they're under indictment, we won't interfere with that. And once and they're that's cooperating the, that, witnesses, yeah, then, you cannot then, question Which them. is why I support the Mueller investigation and always have. Okay. He can then take that ball and move with it. But uh, I believe it's an unfair characterization to say, well, you guys haven't talked to these witnesses, once again, that you can't talk to. We can't talk to them. Therefore, your, your, your investigation is, is somehow sullied or you're doing Not an incomplete sullied, job. Not sullied, but incomplete. Well, uh, but that's why we say we recognize we can't talk to these, these people. We'll let the special counsel take it. Um, so and, why and, reach the conclusion, no evidence of, con- uh, of collusion we, when, we, when saw, you haven't been able to complete the investigation that you would like to complete? Because the, the witnesses that we could talk to and the evidence that we've examined has given us no evidence of collusion. And that's just a fact. Look, that's again, that's not me. Right. And, and if you have evidence of that, I ask you to present it here or bring it to us. But again, it's not just me. Diane Feinstein, many others have reached the same conclusion. And if Mr. Mueller finds a different conclusion, we'll let him do that. I mean, we're not, we're, we're not uh, making any conclusions at all for him and his investigation. But by the way, it's, I think it's important to note as well, of his indictments, none of them indicate any collusion between Trump officials and any Russian agents. None of them do. At well, this point. The, 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 the witnesses who have reached plea agreements uh, uh, acknowledge they lied about their contacts with Russians. Uh, in the case of Michael Flynn, uh, he, he 
has acknowledged lying about his his communications with uh, the Russian ambassador Kislyak. Um, yeah, uh, and I'm uh, telling Mr. you, Mr. Papadopoulos lied about his his contacts with these Kremlin cutouts. Well, I um, mean, if you think that there's something there, then we'll wait and see. All right, I, I'm telling well, you, I, 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 I can I'm, I'm telling you, see, it's the nothing to see here when, when you haven't been there, able well, to question. I'm telling you that what, what we've seen is there's nothing that we've been able to see. There's nothing to see here. How about there's nothing to <clears> see? I, I got to tell you, I'm I'm honestly a little surprised because you yeah. are familiar with this. Yes. Uh, if I were, if you had Diane Feinstein sitting here right now, right. senior Democrat, I'd be asking her the exact same question. And how would she be answering it? Well, because we, she's we'll, answered we'll that. Invite her on and no, find she, out. But <laughs> she's answered that question. Yeah. She has said, we don't see evidence of collusion. So it's not just Republicans. Senior Democrat on the Senate committee who's investigating this has reached the same conclusion. Let's, let's talk about some of, the, some of the witnesses who you could uh, interview who are not under Mueller's purview right now. Michael Cohen. You questioned him, but uh, as the Democrats point, point out, you did not uh, subpoena his documents. You did not um, uh, use compulsory process. And given some of the questions about Michael Cohen's conduct on other matters right now, Stormy Daniels, doesn't that raise questions that you would at least want to do what any investigator would want to do? Use your subpoena power, which you've got, to see his emails, to see his text messages, to question him under oath. Let me ask you this. Two things. Yeah. Is What's Michael Cohen's relationship with the president? He's his longtime lawyer. He's And so yeah. it seems to me there's this American principle of the client attorney privilege. And I don't know anyone who would want to violate that. And if you're going to do that, then we open up millions of cases that are now suddenly, uh, if you say, well, we're going to investigate or we're going to subpoena or we want to see the records of the attorneys of these people. I mean, who in the world would support that of all of these uh, dozens and dozens of witnesses that we brought forward? Would we propose that? And if they and if they provide us no information, and that's the key, right? And they say no, I've seen no evidence. I wasn't involved. That I wasn't at that meeting, et cetera, et cetera. I didn't travel overseas, and, right. we, and here's here's my passport to prove it. And if they provide us no information, on what basis do you then say, well, we don't care. We want to see your financial records. Because I think most Americans would be offended by well, that. Well, I don't know about financial it's, records, but certainly at least well, in some cases, documentation in, in for some what cases he says they, about whether he met with Russians during the 2016 campaign. Yeah, but in some of these cases, they've asked for people's financial records. And I don't know any American who, who right. as a witness, they're not a target. They're a witness. Right. But when they don't provide the information that someone's hoping they will, and they'll say, well, okay, then we want more. We want to see your financial records. We want to see your travel documents. It seems to me terribly intrusive. Can you vouchsafe... Can you vouch say for Michael Cohen's credibility? I don't know Michael Cohen well enough to say one way or another. So I, have, I, have, right. I have no reason to doubt his credibility. And um, I think that's a, that's a fair place to start. I think unless provided evidence that someone's being deceitful or dishonest, I think the courts have to presume that someone is not. Uh, is not. That's the courts, but you're not the courts. You're the Congress, and yeah. you're trying to get to the truth. And I think you'd agree that there are a swirl of questions here that remain unanswered. Such as? Uh, the nature and depth of the contacts between people in the Trump campaign and Russians during Such the as? 2016 election. Such as? Well, uh, Papadopoulos for one. The, the, the uh, Kremlin he... cutouts who told him about thousands of emails before it was public that the uh, uh, Russians had hacked the DNC. 
Well, and once again, he's under uh, under indictment by the special counsel, and we'll let him do his work. Okay, but you don't know the answer to the question, so you asked for a such as. I just gave you one. Well, I, when you say I don't know the answer to the question, what do you mean? You don't know what those contacts were all about. You don't know what the Russians told Papadopoulos. You don't know what Papadopoulos told uh, people in the Trump campaign uh, and whether that tipped the Trump campaign off to what the Russians were up to in the election. Once again, not just me, we see no evidence of collusion between them Russians. Look, we can talk about this all day. I got to tell you, I'm surprised that you want to talk about this because uh, I don't know anyone else who's thinking about collusion. And if your audience is, they're going to be terribly disappointed. If you have people who are lying awake at night going, I can't wait till Donald Trump is impeached for collusion, those dudes are going to wait a long, long time. I just really believe that. And if you've got evidence of it, I mean, look, like I say, we could ride this horse as long as you want. But it's not, uh, you know, the evidence is pretty clear that it's just not going to take people to the impeachment of Donald Trump nor other people around him. A um, couple of quick questions. When are we going to see uh, your report, the House, the Republican House Intelligence Committee report? I hope. I, I don't know. And this is me speaking. I'm not the chairman. But we wrote this report with the idea that it would be declassified. So we, it, it doesn't contain. There's a few paragraphs in there that, that we know are uh, and we identify them paragraph by paragraph, classified, unclassified, uh, secret, you know, top secret. Uh, we don't think it will take very long. I hope it doesn't take very long. We're going to push them to do it as quickly as possible. I would hope within a month. Within I would, a month, we'll I see I would it. hope within a couple of weeks. Right, right, right. Uh, but that's, that. once we give it to them for review, that's no longer up to us. It's up to them. Uh, final question. You have cited Robert Mueller's uh, investigation a couple times now. Uh, as you know, the president uh, c continues to attack the Mueller probe as recently as uh, this week, uh, yeah. issuing tweets suggesting it's politically motivated. There was no basis for it. Um, do you believe Robert Mueller should be uh, 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 given the freedom to continue his investigation until he's complete? I do. And um, if the president were to fire Robert Mueller, what would be your reaction? Well, I would be very, very upset with that. And I, and by upset? The way, I mean, anything Well, more? I mean, I, I don't know what we could do at that point. We'd have to cross that bridge. But by the way, I don't think that he is. The White House has said as recently as a few days ago, we're not going to fire Mr. Mueller. It would be a terrible mistake for them to then do that. Then why does the president continue to denigrate Mueller and raise questions about his investigation? I think because the president feels like he has been unfairly attacked for going on a year and a half about this. He doesn't believe there's collusion, as we've talked about. He feels like his administration has been uh, denigrated and... and uh, before the American people and before the world unfairly. And uh, look, I understand that. I mean, I can see why he feels that way. And by the way, and this is, if you'll, if you'll allow me to elaborate on one other sure. thing on this, on collusion, mm -hmm. it's important to make this distinction that I think you will appreciate because you're a fair-minded person. We may not agree on everything, but I think you're fair. And that is when you accuse people of conclusion or conspiracy, these are meaningful crimes. They're not jaywalking. It's not throwing a bubblegum wrapper on the ground. Right. This is conspiracy. It's treason. And many of these people have had this cloud held over their head for a long time now. And if we see no evidence of that, isn't it fair to tell the American people that? 
so that they can have that cloud removed. Wouldn't you want someone who's innocent to, to, if we don't find evidence, to say we don't see evidence of this? Now, the president may feel that way as well. Uh, do I wish he would leave this subject alone? I absolutely do. Do I think it hurts him in, in his credibility with the investigation? I think it actually does. Do I think he's going to fire the, the special counsel? I don't believe that at all. I really don't. Uh, and, and, I, and I and others, I was one of the first on the committee. In fact, I think I was the first on the committee who said we should call for a special counsel. This is a, what, a year and a couple months ago or however long it's been. Uh, I want him to conclude his work. I hope that Mr. Mueller is fair, and I hope he does it quickly. I think he owes, like we felt on the committee, I think he owes the American people a response as quickly as possible. This shouldn't drag on for years and years. Uh, Congressman, I really appreciate you coming in. Uh, it's been an uh, uh, interesting, spirited discussion, and uh, I hope we can have it again. Good look forward to it. All right. Thank you. And now for a somewhat different perspective, we are joined by Evelyn Farkas, uh, a former official of the Obama administration, Deputy Assistant Secretary for Russia and Ukrainian Affairs, between 2012 and 2015. And uh, before that, the executive director of a uh, commission on preventing WMD, weapons of mass destruction, that looked into Russia's biological and chemical weapons program. Evelyn, thanks for joining us on Skullduggery. Thanks for having me. And I should just clarify that deputy assistant secretary job was at defense, so in the Pentagon. Uh, yes. And if I didn't say that, I was remiss, <laughs> as I often am. Um, Evelyn, let's start out with uh, President Trump's phone call congratulating uh, Vladimir Putin on his reelection uh, as Russia's president this week, uh, despite the uh, notes handed to him by national security aides saying in capital letters, do not congratulate. What do you make of Trump's phone call? Yeah, well, first of all, I don't know why he felt he had to make a phone call to Vladimir Putin at all. Certainly, I would not have congratulated him on anything. And if anything, I would have congratulated him on his reappointment. That's probably the best term that I've seen people use. But most people feel that it's not worthy of congratulations. I know that the German chancellor and the French president also called they, to to my knowledge, I mean, the, the reports are that they didn't congratulate him on his election. They didn't use those words. So, look, the reality is that what all these leaders should be delivering is a firm message to Russia to and to Putin to cut it out, to stop infringing on our sovereignty, stop attacking the West and creating a, a more dangerous situation daily with regard to our relations. So what do you make of the fact that the president did make this call? What does it tell you? Uh, how do you uh, process it in the context of everything else we've learned about uh, President Trump's attitudes and comments about Vladimir Putin? Well, maybe I'll amend my comments a little bit to say the fact that he made the call and that the other leaders made the call, that in and of itself is okay. I mean, you can make the call and say, okay, um, I'm glad to see that now you have you're ready to work with a you know some kind of mandate from your people. I mean, you you obviously have to like it or not accept their political dynamic and understand that the man now feels that he has a new mandate, the man being Vladimir Putin, he has a new mandate as the 
within his system reappointed, you know, president of Russia for six more years. So, so you know, as 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 his equivalent, President Trump should. I, I suppose it's fine, and it's and it's understandable that he would call him to say, "Okay, so what are we going to do now, moving forward?" Mm-hmm. And that's where, again, I would say he should have said, "Okay, let's move forward constructively. Let's have you stop again infringing on the sovereignty of the United States and our allies. Let's have you stop assassinating people overseas." And, and by the way, I think there was a suspicious death here too. Although some people tell me not to raise it. In any event, which which suspicious death? Um, was the that? death of Mikhail Lesson, who mm-hmm. was very close to Putin at one point in time, helped him basically take over the Russian, the Russian media from the oligarchs, right. uh, primarily Boris Berezovsky. Although others. to be fair, in that in in that instance, didn't the Washington police uh, and the FBI conclude that it was uh, uh, not? A case of murder that the guy got drunk. And, well, I think it was more that they couldn't prove it was. So I could be wrong, but in any event, l- let's just say that we we know that he's a t- assassinating Russian right. Russians, uh, ethnic Russians. They may well be British citizens. Anyway, people in the UK. We'll get into that in a moment. Um, yeah. And we know that they he, that Russia has invaded and continues to occupy twenty percent of the Republic of Georgia, as well as they have illegally annexed. The first time they changed boundaries in Europe was in Ukraine when they illegally annexed Crimea. They're continuing to fight a war in another part of eastern Ukraine, in the Donbass. Let's see what else. We know, of course, that they attacked our elections using fake fake propaganda, Facebook, Twitter. Um, We know that they hacked into the DNC and to John Podesta's email, that then somehow that was transferred to WikiLeaks, which in essence is an arm of the Russian government at this point. Um, We know that the Russians uh, have broken their arms control agreements, nuclear, the Intermediate Nuclear Forces Agreement, as well as conventional. We know that they buzz our military planes. They get incredibly close. It's very dangerous for the Russian pilots as well, of course, as our pilots. They buzz our ships. Um, Let's see. I mean, I call this the litany of the lamentables. Usually I have like a list of 12 things. I didn't bring it with me today, but you you hear. (laughs) I probably Sounds like you got it it. down. But look, you were known as a Russia hawk in the Obama administration. Uh, You wanted uh, the White House uh, under President Obama to take a much uh, tougher stance against the Russians. You wanted to provide lethal assistance to uh, the the Ukrainians to fight off uh, the the men in little green helmets. who were invading their country. Um, you know, a lot of people think that um, uh, President Obama bears a lot of blame here, that he didn't push back strong enough against uh, what Putin was up to in Ukraine, in Crimea, and then later during the election itself, when it was clear the Russians were meddling in our election. There were people who wanted to brush back Pretty, uh, 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 pretty tough, and um, as we document in Russian roulette, by the way, uh, and yet the White House failed to do so. How disappointed are you in the president you served? I think that President Obama did, if you step back, fundamentally, he had the right policy, and he had a strong policy. So his policy was, with regard to Ukraine, hold the line. Make sure that Ukraine maintains its sovereignty, doesn't lose control over more territory, mm-hmm. you know, keeps keeps Ukraine intact as a state, maintains the sovereignty, the ability of the of the government to stay in power, to 
to rule the people that want to be ruled by Ukraine, which is, again, the Ukrainian people. So he, he held the line, and I think it's very important to note that. And what, what President Obama was trying to do was hold the line without provoking the Russians to escalate militarily or politically, either with the government of Ukraine or with the United States, NATO, the West. So he held the line and he maintained a balance. Yes, I think that he could have done more, we could have done more to help Ukraine more, to deter the Russians earlier if we had provided them with lethal defensive weapons with the anti-tank missiles in particular, the Javelin system. Mm -hmm. I also believe we should have provided it to Georgia. And now, of course, both countries can. They do have the right to purchase those weapons, which mm -hmm. again was what we were calling for, those of us. And I was not alone, I should say. Mm -hmm. There were others of us who were arguing mm -hmm. for this. So I would say that there were things we could have done to strengthen Ukraine, to strengthen the non-NATO allies. With regard to the NATO allies, I think we did an excellent job, and we certainly have deterred the Russian government from infringing upon the sovereignty of those states, at least militarily. Did we deter them not to interfere in our elections? We did not, and we also didn't do – we didn't help our allies. We didn't do anything as an alliance either, so to help France and Germany in advance of their elections. Why certainly not? not France. Well, I think my guess is, and again, I wasn't there when this became apparent to our government. Certainly, I was not aware of it when I was in government, so that would be until the end of October 2015. But my guess is that we, it probably was a mixture of lack of putting together all the dots and then, um, and then disbelief that they would actually do something this risky. And finally, Again, the, uh, the, the underlying fear that the Russians might escalate, that they might actually go further. The thing about Putin is if he sees opportunity, he's happy to be a risk taker. And that's where maybe we, we could have prevented him from being a risk taker by being firmer. But again, it's a calculation that our government has to make, and it's not always easy. Well, let's, uh, let's explore what is probably one of the riskiest or bolder moves um, that he appears to have taken in recent weeks, and that is the nerve agent poisoning plot yeah. against a former Russian spy who was returned to, uh, uh, who was given up by the Russians as part of a swa spy swap in 2010, living quietly in uh, Salisbury, England, and um, uh, suddenly uh, finds himself in a hospital as a result of poisoning by a very lethal nerve agent. Um, what do you make of this and why Putin would have done this if he indeed did it at this point in time? Right. Well, first, I think the important thing to note is he's clearly sending a signal to people in Russia, people close to him, people who were close to him and fell out with him. So some of these folks are obviously intelligence agents who became spies for the West. Um, we have Litvinenko, who was a who was a spy, a Russian agent, but then fell out with Putin and fled and went but, to. But the difference is Litvinenko was in Putin's face. He was speaking out. Right, he was right, denouncing right, right. Putin's corruption. He was uh, a, a menace right. to the Russian regime. This guy Skripal was doing living none his life of that. quietly, as far yeah. as we know. As far no. as we know. Now, but the main point is again, the point I want to make as the first point is that Putin was signaling to everyone 
really within his circle, you know, within Russia to Russians, that you are not out of the reach of the Kremlin. And if you cross me, you are a traitor forever. So even if there was a deal and there was an exchange and therefore, you know, we shouldn't touch their, you know, the U.S. shouldn't touch their guys that were exchanged and he shouldn't touch the guys that, that they gave in, in the exchange. Putin saying, no, if you were a traitor once, you're a traitor forever and I can get you anywhere. That was the no- first message. Mm-hmm. The second one was to the U.K. and to the West, hey, <laughs> you can't protect those people. Right. And that's really kind of a, a smack in the face. You know, you're so, you, Pretty you can't scary, protect those people. Actually. And, 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 then, and then third, he was also saying to them, and your sovereignty means nothing to me. So not only does the sovereignty of Ukraine, the sovereignty of Georgia, and of course, again, he already attacked our elections. He attacked the French elections. He attacked, uh, we don't know whether he attacked the German elections, but certainly he attacked the German parliament. There was a big hack they did to the, to the parliament computer systems. You know, there, there's been multiple infringements of, of sovereignty of these states. And he's showing by these assassinations that he continues to hold our sovereignty in contempt. He thinks we're weak. And so that's important. The third thing was that I don't care if you know that it was me. I'll deny it. But because those 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 nerve agents could be tracked back to Russia and he knew it, you know, there's a signature on them. Mm-hmm. He knew it would be traced back to Russia. So he wanted us to know that he was responsible. It's very typical of the Russian government where they like to deny, have the deniability, but they also want us to know so we fear them. Okay, so you were, as I mentioned in the introduction, uh, the executive director of this WMD commission that did, in fact, um, uh, explore Russia's chemical and uh, biological weapons program. Um, What did you learn during uh, that process that bears light on uh, what just happened in the UK? Well, what we were not looking, we were, we met with Russians. We went and we met with the Atomic Energy Agency mm-hmm. in Russia, the Ross Adam officials. Right. And then we also went out to this facility, which they called a research facility, where they had um, knowledge of biological weapons. Now, the biological weapons, and, and I can't recall now exactly whether there, there were biological weapons whether they said they were contained there or not. Mm -hmm. The point was that at that point in time, this was 2008 when we were doing the work of the commission, and we were meeting with the Russians to talk about cooperation and what more we could do to cooperate. And we have had a longstanding agreement now with the Russians post-Cold War that we would get rid of our chemical weapons stocks here in the United States, Mm -hmm. and they would get rid of theirs. Now, they kind of deny that they ever had any, so it's very difficult with the Russians to have these kinds of agreements, but nevertheless, they did admit to having some of them, and they claim that they have destroyed them all. We in the U.S. are very open and honest, and Did you believe them when they said they had had destroyed it all? Um, No, we didn't. But, you know, you have to have some conversation with your counterparts and and try to achieve whatever level of transparency and agreement you can have. We I think you you can always assume that there's a certain amount of hedge and and I think in 2008 we already had reason to believe that this was a government that was not going to be cooperative across the board that they were going to hedge with us. Why do I say that? Because in 2007 Putin 
who was the president at the time, gave gave a speech saying, or no, sorry, he was the prime minister at the time, gave a speech. No, 2007. Oh, no, he, he was, was right president. before Medvedev, correct. Yeah. He gave a speech saying that, um, you know, the, the, he, he decried, he decried, he, he bemoaned the, mm-hmm. the fall of the Soviet Union and said that enough is enough, you know, the West is, so he was kind of pointing his finger at the West saying the West is the problem, that we are aggressive, we're trying to change regimes all over the world, et cetera. And then we had in 2008 the invasion of Georgia by the Russians, by the Russian government, by the Russian military. And so we already knew that was obviously a problem, even though there was at the time some some attempt to blame the Russian government, the Russian president, Shakashvili at the mm-hmm. time for, for being a hothead and, and being partly to blame for the Russian invasion. In retrospect, upon closer examination, really the Russians kind of egged him into, egged the Georgian president into his 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 actions. On the other hand, um, this is 2008, uh, just two years earlier, we had the uh, uh, murder by polonium poisoning of Litvinenko in uh, in the UK. So, which which, by the way, um, Christopher Steele, who investigated that uh, uh, assassination for MI6 and the British government uh, has called the first act of nuclear terrorism in the world committed by the Russian state. So um, there was reason to be concerned about Russian state action right. with these agents as well, right? Yeah. Now, we interpreted our mandate at the time, this this WMD commission, which was which was basically a child of the 9-11 commission to look at the right. nexus between terrorists and, and WMD. We interpreted our mandate to really not include the state actors. So it was really focused on in non-state In retrospect, terrorists. was that right? I think given the mandate we had at the time, it was right because we were so worried about terrorism. But, you know, if you step back and look at the big picture, we probably should have pointed a more critical figure at Russia. Yeah. Right. Right. Um, So you accept what the U.K. government has concluded here, that this was state-sponsored assassination plot against Skripal. I have no reason to doubt there. If that's the case, what... Intelligence and integrity. (laughs) Right. If that's the case, what is the right response to something like that? Well, I think what Theresa May did, expelling the probably intelligence agents who were in in Mm -hmm. the UK, was a good first step. But it's only a first step. I mean, I think what we need to do is make the Kremlin, Putin and his cronies, pay a price. So... The best way to do that that we know right now is through sanctions. The sanctions we have, U.S. and EU, and U.K. is still part of the EU, on Russia are feather light compared to the sanctions we have on North Korea today or that we had on Iran in the past. So there's a whole lot of stuff you could do between feather light and and what is it called extreme extreme. Well, give me, give, give me a couple of give me a couple of examples of what you think would be um, uh, the way to ratchet up uh, the sanctions on the Russians. Well, we could prohibit. So we could we could implement first of all implement the sectoral sanctions that are in law mm-hmm. right now. Our government, the Trump administration, has not yet implemented. I think. Uh, Senator Menendez pointed out something like six categories, including crude oil. So we should implement sanctions on anyone purchasing crude oil from Russia. That would be one way to start. I think 
restricting their access to capital, so the Russian banks' access to capital would certainly make the oligarchs and the people around Putin pay a price. Anything, frankly speaking, affecting large corporations in Russia would have an impact. Now, I also think, you know, when it comes to natural gas, we should not be doing any business with Russia. So if I were Theresa May, I would be lobbying very hard uh, all the EU governments, first and foremost Germany, to back out of the Nord Stream 2 deal, which is basically a natural gas deal that that provides natural gas from Russia through pipelines directly to Germany. It's the second, they call it Nord Stream 2, because it's the second one of these pipelines. Mm -hmm. It avoids a route that now goes through Ukraine and other Eastern European countries, which means that those countries, they actually have, they get some revenue from it. So the Russians, in effect, are pulling away revenue from those countries and going straight to Germany. And, of course, they're also making more money themselves because that revenue that's not going to the Eastern European countries is going to Russia. You said if you were Theresa May, that's what you'd be doing. If you were in the National Security Council in the White House, what would you be telling President Trump right now? I would be telling President Trump that he needs to speak firmly with the Russian president but also that he needs to implement the sanctions that are already on the books in the law, mandatory. I mean, he should be implementing them, and that he needs to take further action. Because the reality, and and again, some of these sanctions that I just outlined, we need to to adopt them and now. Because this Russian government does not understand anything except yet. (laughs) They don't understand anything except a firm line. And if you don't respond if you shrug your shoulders like the president seems to be doing and pretend as if nothing's going on. Putin will just keep going. He'll keep pushing. And why do you think the president shrugs his shoulders? I mean, it looks like he has some reason to want to stay on Vladimir Putin's good side. So it looks to me like either he wants to do some business with Putin in the future, or he may be compromised by some information that Putin has on him, uh, financial or personal. You know, if we believe everything in the dossier, then it's both. So either way, uh, he's behaving as if he would rather please the Russian government than defend the United States from As Secretary Panetta put it on TV the other day, I was actually quite surprised to see him use these words. He said, they are our enemy. They are our enemy of Russia. (laughs) Um, On that note, Evelyn Farkas, I thank you for joining us on Skullduggery. Thanks for having me. Thanks to Congressman Chris Stewart and Evelyn Farkas for joining us on this week's episode of Skullduggery. Don't forget to subscribe to Skullduggery on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to your podcasts. And also tell us what you think. Leave us a review. We'll talk to you next week.